Well, Isaiah chapter 60 is where we are today. We are understanding God as Isaiah presents Him. And we see His victorious nature. Or, ironically, as we finish the book of Isaiah, we see God's finishing nature. You say, Todd, how can you compare finishing and victorious? Well, I just was looking at several words in the New Testament and the Old Testament that are that are synonymous with victory. And one of them is the word complete or finish. In fact, if you'll check out my blog this week, you'll notice I listed in one of the blogs a number of references that describes God's victory. They talk about when God wins everything, how He finishes what He started. One of them is Philippians 1.6. It says that, that God, you can be confident in this, that God will complete what He began on the day of Christ. Do you catch that? There's a day coming when everything will be completed. In other words, Paul called it the end of our salvation in which God finalizes what He began. And there are probably seven or eight, nine Scriptures that bear proof to God's victorious nature being that He finishes what He starts. One of my favorites is Romans 16.20. Our kids learned it about three or four weeks ago in their workshops. It says, And the God of peace, watch this phrase, will soon crush Satan under your feet. In other words, God's fully aware that He's given the foe some room to operate, but the day is coming when what? He will crush him. He'll do away with him. You see, God will finalize what He already began. He'll finish. He will finally be, we'll use the word, visibly victorious. And when that happens, He will get all the glory, by the way. In fact, between Isaiah 60 and the end of 66, the word glory is mentioned 23 times. That's very fitting because to the victor go the what? Spoils. I mean, you're watching a championship game when the game's said and done and you have one victor who gets the interviews. Not the losing team. Oh, they may get a shot or two to kind of cry their tears, but the glory goes to whom? The winners. And when all is said and done, God finishes what He started with His children Israel, with the globe and the Gentiles, with the New Jerusalem, He will get all the glory. He will be the lone victor. We see that in Isaiah chapter 60 and through 66. So let me just kind of give you a quick summary of, the, of what it means to be a, 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 a quick capsule statement of God's victorious nature. Then we're going to see it displayed in these chapters. Here's what God's victorious nature is. I want to give it to you up front this week. And then we're going to kind of see it revealed in the Bible. God's victorious nature is His ability to ultimately finish what He originally started. Just jot that down. Make a note of it. That's the kind of God we serve. He's not going to fall asleep on the job. He didn't forget your name. He didn't uh, fail to remember this or, or slip up here. God will finish what He started. Amen? Personally, nationally with the Jews, uh, geogra- uh, geographically with our creation. I mean, God is a God. He's a finisher. He's victorious. Here's how it is in my language. Let me put it to you how I like to say it. In the end, He wins. Amen, church? Could you say that with me? In the end, He wins. Now we're going to see in Isaiah chapter 60 through 66 what happens when He wins in the end. So with your Bibles at Isaiah 60, let me just briefly show you uh, some of the things that happens, uh, some of the things that, that occur and that are brought to a place of finality when God wins. Isaiah 60, 
verses 1 through 22 talk about a new and final day. In fact, the very first verse of Isaiah 60 kind of signifies this. Look there with me. Isaiah 60 verse 1. Here it is. It's almost like God's wake-up call. Look what He says. Arise. That's a real new day kind of word, isn't it? Wake up. It's a brand new day. He says, shine for your light has come and the glory, there's that word, the glory of the Lord rises upon you. It's a brand new day when the end comes and God finishes what He started. Now, I'm not going to be able to go through every one of these in depth right now. I would encourage you in your lighthouse or possibly as a family to take all six of these and look at them one a day. It would be a great weekly devotional for you. Here's the second one. Uh, In Isaiah 61, we see about a new and final life. In fact, verse 2 of Isaiah 61 actually specifies what kind of life it is. It is a life of freedom in what is known as the year of Jubilee. Look at verse 2 of Isaiah 61. He says it's time to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He's speaking there of the year of Jubilee. And when the end comes and he reestablishes the nation of Israel and God sets the captives free, so to speak, that year of Jubilee is back into play, that's what it will be. It will be a brand new life. A new day, a new life. I think in Isaiah 62, he talks about a final and a brand new name. In fact, in Isaiah 62, we know that Jerusalem gets six brand new names. They're listed in Isaiah 62. You ought to try to find those. One of those is the word Beulah. A lot of us have thought Beulah was talking about heaven, but you know that technically, and to be scripturally uh, truthful with you, Beulah speaks of the new Jerusalem that God's going to create. It's going to be a place of uh, 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 brand newness, and it will finally be established as the place where God will dwell and rule and reign. So God gives a final new name. In Isaiah 63 and 64, we see a final new conquest. In fact, look at Isaiah 63.1. Here's a, a somewhat grim picture, but it really speaks of victory very well. Isaiah 63.1 It says, Who is this coming from Edom? And by the way, Edom, as we know, is a is symbolic of all lost and unbelieving peoples. It's the birthplace of Esau, who was not the chosen child. So Edom here represents unbelievers. And it says, Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garments stained crimson? In other words, the clothes he's wearing are dripping with blood. They've got the the sign that he's been battle-tested. And you know what? This is probably speaking of his return from the Battle of Armageddon. When he comes back victorious after defeating the unbelieving nations who have rallied against his children. So, so here's a picture of a final new conquest when once and for all, God reigns. Chapter 65, we know about a final and new creation. Look at verse 17 of Isaiah 65, and I'm really going through this quickly. I know you're loving this. You're thinking, man, we'll be out in time for, for appetizers and lunch. You're loving this, aren't you? Look at Isaiah 65:17. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered. Here, domestically, so to speak, or geographically, God creates new things and places. So, as we look at the end happening, we see new and final things occurring across the board with people, with an environment, uh, with nationalities. God finishes things and He institutes new things. The final one in Isaiah 66 is a new and final nation. And you'll notice in verses 7 and 8 how it talks here about the delivery pains going on as the nation is once again gathered together and the new Jerusalem is born, so to speak. And God gathers His children together nationally and collects them. And He once again establishes, I believe, Jewish worship 
And He brings them together as His people. And He once again visibly calls them His own. He's there in their midst. So a lot of new things happening here uh, as the end approaches. Now, here's what I think is very striking. When you see all these new and final things... They're written in poetry form. Do you notice that? In fact, look at your Bibles. Most of your translations will be formatted in just this way. They will be a poetic kind of form. But that ends in 66.16. Do you see that? Look at your Bible. Do you see how the prophetic poetry ends? And in verse 17, we have a summary of everything he just talked about. I want to spend some time now looking at this because it really lays out for us in more of a dialogue fashion what he just discussed poetically. Let's read together. Isaiah 66, verse 17. Let's see how the book closes. Let's see how Isaiah uh, speaks on the Lord's behalf and describes the victory that's about to come in the end times. Verse 17. Those who consecrate and purify themselves... To go into the gardens, and by the way, let me just stop here and say that he's speaking there of those idolatrous pagan gardens where um, lots of idolatrous practices occurred. They would follow their uh, charismatic leader in there and they would commit incestuous and uh, terrible sins with one another. And it was all as an act of idolatrous worship. The word, is seven, the word those in verse 17 goes back to the word those in verse 16, by the way. In other words, these are the people that God slays at the end. It sounds kind of grim, but they're the unbelieving ones who follow their leader as pagan as he is. They follow him anywhere. Which one commentator said about this verse, he said, It's not that unbelievers don't believe anything. It's that they will believe just about everything. Interesting, isn't it? They'll swallow anything in the, as the end times approach. Look what he says here, verse 17. Those who consecrate and purify themselves to go into the gardens, following the one in the midst of those who eat the flesh of pigs and rats and other abominable things. I mean, who would think of that? But you'd be surprised what people do in an unbelieving, rebellious state. He says, they will meet their end together, declares the Lord. Verse 18. And I, because of their actions and their imaginations, am about to come and gather all nations and tongues, and they will come and see what? My glory. There's a day coming when God will gather together all the nations. And He's going to, as we said earlier in Isaiah, He's going to level the playing field. His judicious nature will be displayed and victory will be sealed. They will see His glory. And here's what I think happens. These verses can be somewhat difficult to understand, but don't lose them. Let's don't underestimate the work of the Holy Spirit as He enlightens our minds. When God gathers all these nations to this final place, this battle, this, this uh, end-time um, arena, there will be those who will, will be destroyed because of their unbelief and rebellion. And then there will be those who actually did believe. And they're called a remnant. Look at verse 19. He said, I will set a sign among them. Speaking of all these nations that, that God is now judging. I will set a sign among them. And I will send some of those who survive to the nations. Do you catch that? It's as if in the middle of all these unbelieving people, there is this small remnant that does believe. And God takes that remnant and He sends them out like ambassadors to places like Tarshish, to to Libyans, to the Lydians, who were famous as archers, to Tubal, to Greece, to distant islands, to places that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations. Do you catch that, guys? 
I mean, there's going to be a small group that will one day, even at the very end, be dispersed to make sure that every single person had the opportunity to hear of God's fame and glory. And then verse 20 says what happens because of those ambassadors. It says, They will bring all your brothers from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem. In other words, isn't that awesome? Even at the very end, those who've never heard, they'll get one last opportunity. And when they hear, even among those, at the very end, there will be some who will believe and they will be brought to the Lord as an offering. And then he describes a picture of that. He says they're coming on horses and camels and chariots and wagons, he says. Look at the next verse. They will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonial clean vessels. He draws a picture. He says, guys, remember back when the temple was there and you would bring your grain offerings in clean vessels? He says, in the end times, you'll be dispersed to go. And you'll be looking for people who've never heard. And of those, there'll be some who will believe. And you will bring them as an offering to God. Isn't that an awesome picture of what God sees as an act of worship. It's our efforts. Now watch this. Principally speaking, it's our efforts at reaching people are an offering to God. Scripturally here, he's speaking of the end times acts of these ambassadors. But I think it lets us in on something that God really values. God values an act of worship in which we, when we go out and we reach people and we, we try to bring them back, God values that. He sees it as an offering. He says in that last day, He'll even select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. What a picture of the end time. What a glorious picture of victory. Verse 22, He says, As the new heavens and the new earth that I will make will endure before Me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. In other words, I will gather all of you back finally. All of those who've been in places we've never heard about. I'll gather those who who at last will finally believe. I'll gather you all together. And this time, there'll be no end. There'll be no holocaust, shall we say. There'll be no opportunity to, to beat you down or to try to make you non-existent. You will last forever in a visible way. You'll get a brand new city. He's speaking here to his children. He says, guys, the day is coming when I will capstone my work and I will complete it. You'll, I'll be victorious. It will last forever. And verse 23 talks about some of these lasting forever kind of uh, ideas. From one new moon to another. In other words, every single day. And from one Sabbath to another. All mankind will come and bow down before me, says the Lord. Isn't that awesome? A day is coming when... Everyone will see and hear and know that God is the only God of the universe and they will come and worship Him. They will go out and look upon... Now watch this next verse. They will go out and look upon the dead bodies of those who rebelled. I think he's speaking here about those that he slew back in verse 16. Those that perhaps remain from Armageddon. The final battle. I think there may be a symbolic picture here of hell as well. Now we know in the New Testament there was a cemetery just outside of Jerusalem called the Valley of Gehenna. It's where a lot of dead bodies piled up. It's where they kind of cast the, the untouchables. He says here, listen, that place is representative of a place where those who rebel are finally placed. And in the next phrase, their worm will not die, nor will their fire be quenched, and they will be loathsome to all mankind. I have a grim picture, isn't it? But let me say this to you. When you have a victor, you have a what? 
loser. Now, I know our culture doesn't like to do that these days. We've got soccer leagues and basketball leagues where no one keeps score. I don't quite get that at all, to be honest with you. you know. I'm not for pushing kids in the wrong way too soon, but let's just be honest. Uh, learning how to lose is part of life. And the truth is, those who don't believe and persist in unbelief and rebellion against their Maker lose in the end. He wins. And there is a place called hell where those who don't believe are cast. And I think this is symbolic of it as well as an actual geographical place. Um, Be aware, people. There's a day coming when it's going to be glorious and it will also be, watch this word, glorious. In fact, let's just give you two quick principles here that I think we can understand from this summary text of Isaiah 66. First of all, the positive side of victory. Victory is glorious. That's kind of a, a good word to use. You know, it's a soccer word, isn't it? Sometimes you hear announcers, you're watching a soccer game, it's a glorious victory on the soccer field, you know, and they're having these, all these accents. It's kind of a British word. But that's what's going to happen. We're going to have a, a glorious victory one day. God's going to reign, and those who believe will be used by Him throughout the ends of the earth in a real mission environment at the very end. We're going to be all be brought back, and God will be center stage. And we will worship Him eternally. That's an awesome day coming. And I want to encourage you to get ready. You say, Todd, how do I get ready for that? Well, Here's something that, that just really prompted my heart this week. On that day and the following days, from the new moon to the next new moon, in other words, all these eternal days and following, when God is center stage, guess what? It will not be about you at all. It just won't be about you. And it won't be about me. It's going to be about God. What do you say we get ready by living that way now? Let's just practice for eternity. Amen? Now, I realize that there are some really strict and specific theologians out there that you're saying to yourself right now, Todd, I'll have a new body. It won't be a problem focusing then. Okay, granted, you're right. Technically, I know that. But would you bear with me a little bit? I sometimes wonder if we really are practicing now for what it's really going to be like then. We, we sometimes make church and our gatherings and our small groups and our lives so much about us. God's a distant thought, isn't He? Oh, we, we, we stamp Him on our plans. And we label Him on our stuff. And we have nice ways of appearing Christian, but when selflessness is really called for, it makes us just kind of get uncomfortable. You mean I gotta give more? I gotta serve more? I gotta do? Wait, 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 wait! Can I say to you that in the final day when He wins, it'll be all about Him, worshiping and serving Him. I just have a good notion just to get ready now and just practice while we're on earth. I'm so thankful for a church that, like we have here, like you guys are a part of, where worshiping God. And celebrating Him is really our primary focus week after week. It's not a matter of trying to coddle these people or pacify this group. But we're all aware that, you know what? A church, anytime it gets larger than two people, that's a joke, people. 
if it gets larger than two people, it's going to be a matter of somebody deferring and being submissive and sacrificing for the larger good. And in this case, God's call gets the call every time. So let's just practice now getting ready for that day when it will be a glorious victory. Selfless living will prepare you for eternity. Now, now, now let me just kind of back up and say this. That won't save your soul. Your soul is only saved by the gospel. The Bible's clear about that. When you believe in the death and burial and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and you call upon His name and you say with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, the Bible says you'll be saved. So that's how we're saved. Just being a good person, living selflessly, doesn't make you ready in the sense of getting your soul ready. I'm just simply making a point that when God does save us and by His gospel get us ready spiritually, let's realize that when that day comes, it's going to be all be about Him. Let's just practice getting ready for that day even now. A selfless lifestyle. When Jesus Christ sits on the throne of our life, and whatever He says goes. If we're having a hard time walking, but He says go to Afghanistan, you just go, don't you? You don't question, negotiate, or barter. You just say, sure, Lord, I'm there. Whatever God says, when that day finally comes and He rules visibly in a victorious way, our hearts are already there. Amen. So victory is glorious, first of all. The other thing I mentioned earlier I want to expound on is that victory is glorious. This is a good made-up word I want to teach you. Victory is glorious. In other words, there's some things about victory that, that aren't real pretty. Like the Valley of Gehenna mentioned here. Like the fact that those who persist in rebellion and unbelief, if they reject the grace of God and the extended saving arm of the Savior, over and over, there is a day coming when they will then have to pay the price for their sins. How much better and wiser... To believe in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as the only payment for sin. Amen? And let, and let Jesus Christ take us to heaven. How much better that than to say, well, I'll take my chances that I can be good enough only to find out that there's none good. No, not one. Folks, this is hard to say in a culture where everyone wants to feel good about themselves, but let me say it to you. Those who don't believe end up in hell. Now, that shouldn't breed in you a judgmental attitude. Let me be quick to go there. That shouldn't breed in us a pointy finger and say, it serves you right. It ought to breed in us a compassionate heart of outreach. It's the height of spiritual racism to sit in a comfortable chair on Sunday morning at 10.30 while your neighbor goes to hell. It'd be the epitome of of spiritual laziness to give your hobby three hours a week but you want to get off the couch to call your neighbor and have a cup of coffee or a Coke and talk about what really matters. You see, sometimes when we hear the word hell, punishment, and condemnation to those who continually choose to not believe. And they reject the loving nature of God, which has been extended way beyond what we're even due. Amen? I mean, we're on borrowed time already, people. When God finally closes the curtain and calls judgment, those who have chosen to not believe, they die 
and they suffer eternally for their own sins. That's right. The person that works next to you, who makes fun of you and your churchiness, they think you believe a myth. That's right. That person will spend eternity away from God in hell unless they believe. Now, see, it looks a little different. You put a face on it, doesn't it? But maybe that's what we ought to do. Maybe we ought to put a face on the people on this broad path to hell. Maybe that'd do us all a lot of good. Yeah, the parents of the kids that, that your child plays soccer with, are they going to heaven or hell? Yeah, the folks you work with, the neighbors across the street, are they going to heaven or hell? It would do all of us a world of good. To think in terms of Isaiah 66, it would breed in us a greater heart of compassion. I was talking to Leah, a 10-year-old in our church this last service. We got through and she said, Pastor Todd, can I tell you a story? And I said, sure. And Leah said, a few weeks ago I was playing with one of my friends and I was sharing with her about how I believe in Jesus. And she said, well, I've never heard of that. And we kept talking. She goes, when we got to the end, Todd, she said, I want to believe. I want to go to heaven. And she goes, Todd, I was able to lead my 10-year-old friend to the Lord. I'm like, wow, Leah, you can pastor next week. That's awesome. I'm kind of laughing with her. And uh, don't take me seriously there, people. It's just a joke. Relax, okay? I mean, I couldn't believe it. She said, my friend and her family, uh, we want to see them come to Christ. And here's this 10-year-old with all this compassion for her friend. The willingness to voice it and talk about it. I was convicted. How quick am I to see my friends and associations as people in need of a Savior? Let me ask you this question. How quick am I to build relationships with people who actually I know need a Savior? Would I run from them like the plague? They'll infect me! Ah! You realize that's why we're here, don't you? Because people matter, and we are often the bridge. And we need to reach out with a heart of compassion and love people who don't know Christ, who've never heard. Maybe they have heard, maybe they don't believe. Compassion makes a difference. And so I encourage you today, I call upon you to live your life in a way that other people ask questions. They'll ponder and wonder. God can use you to spare someone from the goriness of His eventual victory. In fact, would you put a name on it? I'm going to get really specific here. Can you put a name on it? Just in your own mind right now, put a name on it. Who is someone that you're just not really sure if... If victory started today, if the Lord came back and the timeline of the, of the end time began, you're just not real sure where they'd go. That should be your first contact. That's your priority. Just begin to build a relationship with them. Uh, love them. Try to hang out with them. I mean, you know, you can be strategic in how you live your life. Like you can get in long lines at Walmart. So you can talk to people who may not be Christian. You can play on sports teams and you can do things with your family in ways that, that actually breed relationships with people who need to know about the very good news you have. 
We are not to be a church that puts their head in the sand. We're to be a church insulated, but not isolated. Amen? So I would encourage you, church, this week, as names come to mind, as you think about, wow, will they suffer the gory side of God's victory? Let God motivate you to be an ambassador for His cause. And then in a very kind, compassionate way, begin to develop a relationship. What I call a relationship of reconciliation. Let God use you and your family for more than than just perhaps your own little world or your hobbies. Actually write those names down. Put them in the front of your Bible. Put them on a card. Put them on a post-it note. And pray every day that God will take the veil off their eyes. That they'll be unblinded. And they'll see the light of the glorious gospel. You see, as I, as I read the finishing part of Isaiah, I'm left not with a, uh, with a glorious perspective only, but I'm also left with a glorious perspective. And it motivates me to share God's fame and glory with as many people as possible. Yeah, you'll be insulted. You'll be ridiculed. You'll be made fun of. And when that happens, thank the Lord. If I'm not mistaken, the Bible said, Blessed are you when men revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you. I had a man say to me this week, he said, Todd, my neighbor just took me to task and they, he was telling me how this neighbor just got all in his face about his religion and said all these things that... And I said, man, that's awesome. Praise God for you. And he said, what do you mean by that? And I shared that verse with him. I said, man, that's the when you're persecuted for righteousness' sake. Now, if you were a jerk, that's different. But, but if you were honestly in love, compassionate, and then just misinterpreted, and you're persecuted for your faith, the Bible says that's an awesome thing. Why do we want to reject what the Word of God says clearly? Perhaps a little more persecution is what we need. And the reason we don't have it is perhaps because we're not near as compassionate as we say we are. And a little more vocal and verbal if we were a little more vocal and verbal, maybe folks would actually know and hear about the faith we have in the only God who saves. It would be a little rough at first. But how much better that a, uh, the faithful wound of a friend might win someone forever. Amen. Just some thoughts from here in the last part of Isaiah. Victory is glorious, but victory is also glorious. So what do we do with this? There's two thoughts. That's it. The, the main thing is this. Listen to what the Father, the coming King, wants you to do. Listen. What's He saying to you right now? What name is He bringing to mind? What task is He laying before you? How is He wanting you to live in light of coming victory? Listen. His Spirit will lead you. How is He wanting you to spend your money? Spend your time. Develop relationships. Live within your family. Train your kids. Relate to your spouse. How are those things to happen in light of coming victory? Listen. He'll tell you. You see, I've discovered that living in this world while living for another one means I have to have incredibly good listening skills. You know that? Because the noise of what's around me sounds defeating, doesn't it? I mean, if you're thinking this is all there is, you look around and you're like, man, there's no way we're going to win. But we're in this world, but we're listening to the voice of another 
preparing us for another world. And when I hear that voice and listen to him, I'm reminded that this is not all there is. It reminds me of the football game that took place in 1982. I was a senior in high school. It took place in Madison, Wisconsin, between the Badgers and the Spartans. And that day in Madison, the uh, Spartans tore up the Badgers. They demolished them. They crushed them. The score was getting way out of hand by the third quarter. And the fans in the stands weren't even watching. But somewhere around the third quarter, as the score got more and more lopsided toward Michigan State, the fans, the home crowd, began to cheer. And every time something would happen in the, on the field that seemed to represent another loss for the home team, the fans would cheer even louder. And the sportscasters were wondering, what's going on? And even some of the fans were like, man, why are you cheering? And then word got around that though they were watching a losing battle, they were listening to a winning one because most of the folks had turned the game off visually, turned on their portable radios, and they were listening to the Milwaukee Brewers come back and win Game 3 of the World Series over the St. Louis Cardinals. Seventy miles away in Milwaukee, the Brewers stage a comeback, win Game 3, and so there's whole stadium of football fans watching the Badgers get tore up. They're all cheering. Not because of what they're seeing, because they know what's happening somewhere else. I thought, man, that's how we live in this world, isn't it? Man, we're seeing what's happening, and yet we're cheering. We're thankful. We're doing things that seem to indicate victory. Why? Because we know that while we're living in this one, we're listening for what's really happening somewhere else. And we're looking for another world, a better place, a, a city whose maker and builder is God. And so we live with victory in mind. Who are you listening to today? Who's calling the shots in your life? How are you living in a world that seems like it's all about defeat? What's going on? And we're headed for disaster. When you know the real end of the story, can you live in a way that people around you are like, Hey, what's going on? Let's talk. Let's do our part this week to be God's ambassadors so that everyone we know can share in the glorious victory of our coming King. Amen.